This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Captain Bill Hamlet, USN Retired, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So we have been teasing out things we're going to do with the new Jack C. Taylor Conference Center for months now. In fact, I've had more than one person say, yes, I know what's going on with the Conference Center because I listen to the podcast. So we will continue that. Yeah, we love that. But we do love that. We're all about the information awareness piece. But we had a signature event in October. It's called the Gunfighter Series that we're doing for the class of 25 here at the Naval Academy. The first version of this was a TAC Air-focused theme. And we had our good friend Commander Graham Heed Scarborough come over and talk about carrier aviation and aviation pipelines and what a Wizzo does, and all kinds of cool stuff. And he talked about the real Top Gun. And I will tell you, the reception of the plebes was over the top. We started the evening by rolling the initial credits to Top Gun, the movie. And the sound system in the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center Auditorium, which is the Lockheed Martin Auditorium, is next level. And it, it, it's it really a is visceral experience. Yeah, and so we cranked it to 11 and the plebes went crazy. It was really fantastic to see the auditorium at capacity. First time I've ever seen it that jam packed. First time ever. First time ever. And they just went crazy. And as we know, as being former mids at the academy, they're not given to enthusiasm for professional training. And this was official professional training. So, we're off to a great start with the Gunfighter Series. Yeah, totally. It's fantastic. And uh, Graham Scarborough, Commander Scarborough, as you said, Super Hornet Weapon Systems Officer, Wizzo, uh, class of 2004 grad from uh, here at the Naval Academy, and he was the 2019 Proceedings Author of the Year. And he also had in, in this uh, September aviation issue, the September 2021 Proceedings, he had a great article about the future of Naval Flight Officers, which yes. is just a uh, a really foundational piece. Thinking he, about he hinted at that during his remarks, which is basically it's the NFOs that will be controlling the drones when you start getting in that that next generation world. Um, so, you know, he was at his best in front of these plebes and they just loved him. So, like I said, we're off to a great start with this series and look forward to doing every warfare specialty. But be advised if you're listening to this. Um, and you're a service warfare officer or a SEAL or a Marine and you think you want to be part of this, the bar is very high. And we actually will murder board you the afternoon before the presentation. So we're, we're not going to let any just – can't just walk in here with a PowerPoint presentation and think you're going to wow the plebs. So uh, we're off to a great start. 
Love it, love it. Uh, and and the uh, November issue of Proceedings is out. So November is always our Marine Corps focus. And we've got uh, on the line today from uh, Charleston, South Carolina, a Marine Corps author who has written for the Naval Institute Press. So our guest today is uh, Colonel Tom Gordon, U.S. Marine Corps retired. He's the author of the newest book from the press. It is called Marine Maxims, Turning Leadership Principles into Practice. And Colonel Gordon is now serving as the Commandant at the Citadel in Charleston. So, Colonel Gordon, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Gentlemen, thank you. It's an honor. So you were talking a little bit before we came on air about how you were able to get back into uniform and the Marine Corps regs associated with that. So what, what was that all about? Everyone asks how the transition was after retiring after 30 years. And I'll tell you, it doesn't feel like I even transitioned. It was just like another PCS move. Um, so technically, I was required to retire on the 1st of June. That was 30 years, but I was the director of the Command and Staff College at that time up in Quantico. And uh, the college didn't graduate till June 16th. So all the students there knew I was retired, but I kept on playing to the 16th. It was like watching that professional soccer game where the time runs up, but everyone's still on the field. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I graduated them on the 16th. There was a moving truck in front of my house at that time, and uh, I tried to catch it down 95 that Friday, and I started here at the Citadel the following Monday. It's, a, it's just been a sprint, but I'll tell you, I'm, I'm loving every day of it. Well, congrats on your new job and your new book, then. This is, uh, oh, thank you. Both, yeah, both uh, new games. 2021's been quite the year for my wife and I. <laughs> a good year, I guess. Um, so there are a gazillion books on leadership. And, uh, you know, in proceedings, we do book reviews every month. And, and I, I love the book review section of the, of the magazine. Um, but what inspired you to write this book on leadership? What was the, what was the, the you know, Colonel K with a K, not not C. What was the kernel of the idea that uh, got this uh, book project started for you? Well, interestingly enough, I actually started this book um, I, about 34 years ago here at the Citadel. So when I checked in as a knob, as we're referred to down here, we had a remarkable Marine officer instructor by the name of Bill Grickton. He assigned us all, you know, that green cloth notebook, um, you know, that five by eight notebook, and mine became my leadership journal. And I kept it with me for decades. So what I would do is whenever I worked with or in close proximity to a leader I greatly respected, whatever it was that drew me to his attention or her attention, I took that attribute and I wrote it down on the front of the book with a note to myself, hey, if ever in command, you know, I'm going to do just that. So I would scribe that in there. But uh, I have to admit, you know, after 30 years, it wasn't all uh, parades, right? Um, so every once in a while, I found myself working for a, a real martinet. And whenever that occurred, I took the book and I flipped it around and I inscribed in the back what I promised I would never do if I was in command. Well, after about 20 years, the, the front of the book met the back of the book. And I, I guess I had a charm career up until that point because I had more entries in the front of the book than the back. But I probably learned more from the entries in the back, to be honest, on things that I promised I would never do. But I was a sitting battalion commander at that time, and I, I had this stream of consciousness. So what to do with it? So I spent some time organizing my thoughts. And while I was in command, I did two offsites every year with my lieutenants. We were out in 29 bombs there. I had, uh, had the privilege of commanding 1st Tank Battalion at the time. And I took that outline, and I broke it up into two segments and took my lieutenants on an offsite. And I went through that outline. And uh, back then, my call sign was Mufasa, uh, another side story. But... <laughs> As you know, you don't get to give yourself a call sign, right? That one uh, was given to me when I was down in Paris Island. 
but the book originally was named or the, the outline was named Mufasa's Maxims and it was just kind of you know my gift to my lieutenants with the hope that they would start their own leadership journal and uh, they would pay it forward. Well, that wasn't the end of my Marine Corps career at that time, and I was blessed to go on in command at the 06 level, and I started a new uh, a new leadership journal. But this time, as a colonel commander, I found myself making notes to myself, not saying, hey, geez, if ever in command, I'm going to do that or not do this. Uh, instead, I found myself scribing notes saying, geez, I, I wish I had done that. Um, or uh, take, take note to make sure that the next guy comes in, doesn't make that mistake and, and pass it on to him. So I continue to do that leadership journaling until I had the opportunity to go sit on the Council on Foreign Relations for a year up in New York City. And that was probably my first time in, well, that was probably about 23 years that I had the opportunity to kind of inhale, exhale and, and take a, a tactical pause. And I used that, turned that outline in, into the manuscript that uh, the Naval Institute Press was so kind enough to publish. So how is the book organized? What what do you uh, tee up as the initial tenets, and, and how does it go? Well, it's um, as the title portends, it's uh, it's 50 maxims. Now, they're organized into 14 sections. Um, initially, the first four are the only one that you should read in sequence. The rest of them are designed so that any officer or staff NCO or, or leader in any organization can grab that book, and if they're having a challenge with it, they can look at the index and see if there's perhaps you know uh, some ready-made solutions in there. So my initial section is uh, really my leadership philosophy and uh, and how I actually do that. But then also I juxtapose it very quickly with some mistakes I saw on the back end. So there's a piece on toxic leadership. I just thought it was good to bring that up more to the fore so that I could distinguish my leadership style from some of the mistakes that I've seen others make. But then as you go through it, kind of. I focus initially on um, on building character and building um, cohesion within your units. So I was taught from some great staff NCOs, the indications of leadership in any organization really center on four things, right? Discipline, which we're all familiar with. You know, you go on to a, a Navy ship or you see a Marine unit in the field, you can pretty much assess how the state of discipline is in the organization. Of course, we're all trying to achieve the greatest degree of uh, proficiency that we possibly can. Uh, morale is one of those things that, as we know, is uh, wax and wanes, right? It's not something that uh, a leader should, should chase necessarily, but they need to be attuned to what the state of morale is in their organization. But what I found most discerning of, uh, of true leadership in an organization is what we say in the Marine Corps is esprit de corps, right, of building that cohesion within the organization. If you get everyone on the, on the bus or on the boat, if you will, you can take it wherever you want to go. So I kind of organize the next series of maxims or how to get after those uh, four qualities, you know, how to instill discipline in your organization, how to build some cohesion in your organization, and how to create some efficiency in your organization. They, the maxims are organized uh, from big to small. Uh, some of them are more strategically focused on, on how you should set up your command philosophy and your vision and your goals. But then I get into the tactical things, things that I've seen junior officers get in trouble with. Uh, uh, example of a tactical maxim would be the E in email stands for evidence. And I kind of walk them through uh, how, how to properly use email, you know, when in a leadership position, how to use social media, and then some, some obviously some, uh, some pitfalls and some minefields that they should be aware of uh, operating in the, that medium. 
You start off um, with know thyself, uh, and the first maxim requires you to you, you write the first maxim requires you to check your motivations, calibrate your moral compass, and decide what you are willing to do in order to accomplish the mission. Every maxim thereafter focuses on the mission of the Marines and the sailors. Talk a little bit about knowing thyself, and you know things that you learned, maybe that you are proud of and and some maybe that you weren't that proud of as a you know second lieutenant as a as a young captain in the marine corps uh and and how that kind of shaped your trajectory as a leader you know as you as you rose up in responsibility and rank yes the, the first maxim is neither new nor novel right it's a direct lift from the temple of delphi um but it is probably the most challenging thing that we all face as a leader I, I think down here at the citadel or up there at annapolis at the naval academy you know uh, the worst advice I think we give these young midshipmen or cadets is to quote unquote, be yourself, right? I mean, we all have heard that uh, passed around in different leadership lectures, but it, it's really hollow advice to a, a young man or woman, you know, who's sitting there at 18, 19, 22 years old, because the truth is they don't know who they are, right? Um, they don't know who they are at that point. So I try to organize that first maxim with some ideas on how they actually can get after that self-discovery. Um, none of these maxims, I, I should say up front here, are, are really mine, right? These are all things that I've picked up from some other great leaders um, throughout my career. So I was probably most influenced uh, by General Zinni for this first one. Uh, I remember being at the staff college there in Norfolk, and General Zinni talked about a leadership lesson that he would do with his students after he retired, and I thought it was brilliant. He had a writing prompt for us before we had that class with him. And the writing prompt was pretty simple. It was, who are you? And we were supposed to write that down in a page. And when we came in and sat down at the lecture with General Zinni, we were all expecting that we were gonna turn in that particular paper for him to review or for our instructors to review. But instead of turning in the paper, what he instead asked us to do was to flip it over and he changed the writing prompt you know, so ever so slightly to who am I? Uh, and we were supposed to write supposed to complete answer that writing prompt with the understanding that we would not be submitting that but what he was asked us to do was to juxtapose what we put on the front when we were writing a answering the prompt as to who we were as how we were selling ourselves how we were going to present ourselves to our leadership at that time but the second one of course was far more introspective and what he pointed out uh, rather adroitly was is that the delta between you know, who you say you are and who you believe you are, well, that's actually, that's your professional development roadmap right there. And I use that same technique multiple times at the Command and Staff College, and I've started implementing it down here at the Citadel. So I go through some other exercises that the uh, junior officer or future leader could run through to everything for some personality assessment so they can be better attuned with their emotions and some readings that they could do to help with self-discovery. You know, as a leader, we know if you can't, if you're not in control of your own emotions, it's difficult, if not impossible, to uh, be able to lead and influence the emotions in the morale of others, right? And so this particular maxim then is reinforced throughout other maxims within the book. Uh, maxim 22, for instance, is finding your blind spots. Uh, my grandfather uh, was the author of maxim number 23, and that's a smart man knows when he's stupid, right? <laughs> and, and again, it's a... It, it's a good way to make sure that uh, you, you're not the smartest man in the room. Um, that was a lesson I learned from him, and uh, it has served me well in command. I, I always thought that if I was ever in, surrounded 
if I was ever the smartest man in the room, it was time to get really nervous. And then the last one was command and feedback. And those were some lessons that I used deliberately through every command I had on how I would uh, aggressively reach out and seek feedback uh, from the Marines and sailors in the organization. So you mentioned how to use social media. And what immediately comes to mind to me is Lieutenant Colonel Scheller and that circumstance. Um, He also, in the course of some of those Facebook posts, accuses his chain of command of being toxic. So what what's your sense of how the Fleet Marine Force is doing right now with respect to these charges that he made because they've been sort of socialized writ large? And are you folding that into your syllabus or into some of the tactical comms you're having with your cadets? And how do you think he could have done this better? which is kind of an easy question, but, you know, obviously, uh, yeah, um, setting yourself on fire professionally is probably a bad idea uh, in in a whole bunch of ways. Yes, um, you know, the the truth of the matter is, is I think that um, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller will soon be forgotten. Um, That's the social media world that we live in. Unfortunately, the damage that he caused to our professional ethos, I think, uh, will unfortunately echo on for quite some time right now. Uh, I, I was most disappointed when I saw a sitting battalion commander uh, <clears throat> enter into the partisan political fray uh, on social media and criticize the commander in chief and you know, uh, mutinous comments, if if you will, to to the leadership. Right there, of course, many uh, available ways that he could have voiced his concern back up through his chain of command. Uh, but to do so in the manner that he did uh, contradicts everything that I was taught over the past 30 years on how a naval officers, officer is supposed to comport themselves. And uh, I, I thought it flies in the face of our professional ethos. The first class that the director at the Command and Staff College teaches every year is just that, uh, the professional ethos class. And uh, I, I think that Lieutenant Colonel Schiller has rewritten that lesson now probably for, for decades to come. Yeah, so I, I think what, what I'm, I guess, asking inside of the empirical truth that you just uh, put out is, so, and this probably gets to your chapter about toxic leadership, which is, I think, based on his comments, I don't know Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, based on his comments, it, obviously he didn't have a very good relationship with his 06 and, and maybe uh, the brigadier above that 06, and he kind of made some rabbit punch comments about those folks, again, in the same Facebook post where he did all what you're talking about with respect to the commander-in-chief past and present and SECDEF and so forth and so on, National Security Council. All kinds of folks were in that uh, fray, in that in the crosshairs there. Um, so is there systemic toxic leadership? Do we have a tendency at the 06 level to do the shut up and color kind of stuff? Because it seems like that's kind of what was going on there. Um, and had, um, and again, I'm not siding with Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, but had there been a more healthier relationship, uh, might there have been other ways where his frustration may have been grounded, as you suggest, you know, Proceedings Magazine, Marine Corps Gazette, all hands calls, 
you know, office hours, all the things that we know work. If you use them, uh, they may not be as immediate as a Facebook video, but uh, they are effective ultimately. So, you know, again, this is a, a little more nuanced than, than the empirical rightness and wrongness of his actions. All right, Ward, you know, I'm, I'm retired. So uh, I'll give you the unvarnished uh, truth because I know all the players involved, right? So as we looked at that incident, right, I don't know how anybody watching, you know, the collapse of Jeroa and all of our uh, trials, tribulations, sufferings and sacrifice, you know, seemed to slip through our hands, right? I don't know anybody who would have been satisfied or happy watching that take place, right? We're all... I. Pretty much every Marine that I know who has been in as long as we have has had the opportunity to serve in Afghanistan. So we all have had skin in that particular day. When he went public with that diatribe, it was immediately after the, the tragic loss of those Marines, the 11 Marines, sailor and a soldier. And uh, in that, as those families were receiving that news, he decided to go online and make it about him. When people asked me what my thoughts were about it, I said, well, you know, uh, I was taken back at the fact that a lieutenant colonel who is a combat veteran who is now in command would make the loss of those 13 service members about himself and, and use it to and use that medium there to, uh, to voice whatever concerns that he had with the chain of command. And I, I thought that was, and frankly, I thought it was despicable. As far as his command, well, his 06 is Dave Emmel. And Dave Emmel was one of my milfacts when I was at the Grand Staff College. And it would be hard to find someone more professional than Dave. Now, his commanding general was uh, Major General Dale Alford. And if you know anything about Dale Alford, you know Dale Alford is, uh, is not short, right? Uh, when it, he doesn't suffer fools, but Dale will be the first person who will, who will speak up. And uh, before I was a director of the Command and Staff College, I was the military secretary for the 37th Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Neller. And General Neller always surrounded himself with truth tellers. And I'll tell you what, Dale Alford's a truth teller. So <laughs> Dale Alford would let the commandant know exactly what he thought that the commandant needed to know, not necessarily what he wanted to know, um, but he would always let him know. So he had two truth tellers that were above him in the chain of command. And I know General Alford you know, or Colonel Emble would have more than been happy to sit down and walk him through and talk him through, you know, how we could more effectively and professionally voice his concerns up there without making it about him. So I think just for the listeners, so what you're saying is this was a singular issue. This is not a systemic problem with chains of command or Marine Corps accountability, not to mention CENTCOM or SECDEF, et cetera. I, I, I don't believe so. Um, you know, I, I've known uh, General McKenzie since he was a colonel. Uh, when he was in command of the 2-2-MU, I, I worked with him, ironically enough, getting him into Afghanistan uh, the first time when I was a young major planner on the CENTCOM staff. So, no, I, I have the highest respect for all those individuals involved, and, and I just, I, I'm sorry it ended that way for him and his family, uh, but it didn't have to be that way. You know, if shifting back to the book, um, I, I will tell you that I do put some lessons in there on how you can deal with uh with a toxic leader if you find yourself working for a toxic leader um, and i'll tell you if you want a good example or some other writings on it uh, i would look to andy milburn a andy milburn colonel milburn has published uh, many articles on this and uh, i've talked to andy about it he's retired now and he has some articles that are pretty critical of the secretary of defense and 
pretty critical of the CENTCOM commander, but he does it so in a professional way. Um, now, granted, he's retired at this point, which gives him a little bit more latitude, but he had the opportunity to, he, he lays out a roadmap on how you do it. But I think what I learned working with Andy and is how to lead up, right? Andy was a good friend and a mentor of mine, and he, he would always go back to the cane mutiny, right? And he thinks that people take the wrong lessons from the cane mutiny. And everyone wants to make, you know, the captain the bad guy. But Andy kind of flips it on its head and said, actually, you know what? It was his officers that were the bad guy because they had a moral and an ethical responsibility to make sure he was successful. And instead of doing that, they worked against him. So loyalty is a two-way street in the Marine Corps and in the Naval Services. Um, what I would recommend if you ever find yourself working for a toxic boss is sometimes you got to be the buffer and sometimes you have to be the magnifying glass. What you can't do, however, is you can't commiserate with your sailors. You can't commiserate with your Marines. They'll see right through that. They don't need you to point out who the who the weak or the toxic leaders are. The Marines know, right? But you'll retain their respect. You'll retain your sailors' respect. You know, if you lead up, right, they'll see you doing that. But you never should consider, you should never commiserate and, uh, and gripe with your Marines about it. But you also have to take the long view. Um, we've all worked for some really toxic bosses. We've all worked for those Martinets whose entries were in the back of our book. Um, but I also believe that just like Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, all of us need to know what our letter of resignation looks like, right? We need to know where that red line is because at some point, right, there's going to be a time where you're going to be faced with that. Uh, you'll be sitting on what I call your no pen line, right? Your no penetration line. This is as far as I will go and I won't go anymore. You have to know what that is. Um, but I try to provide the reader some alternative strategies on how you can, you know, how you can lead up. Um, one recommendation I always uh, do when I'm talking to a junior Marine who's struggling working for uh, a challenging battalion commander or a challenging uh, regimental or brigade commander is, well, what have you said to your sergeant major? You know, what have you said to your first sergeant? Because sometimes that's a great way, or your command master chief, right? That's a great way to get the message up to your boss's boss without um, without being disloyal, right? The senior staff NCO ranks, you know, they have their own chain of, they have that parallel chain of command that runs back and forth and it, it should be open and candid communication. So if there is a problem within a particular unit, the senior staff NCO should be passing that up to the uh, to the MCPON or to the, uh, well, maybe not always the MCPON, excuse me, but to the, uh, whoever the command master chief is and wherever the sergeant major is. Tom, I love the fact that you brought up uh the cane mutiny and the example from that. I remember being a, a young lieutenant and attending a Naval Institute conference here in Annapolis back in the early 90s. And uh, Herman Wauk, the author of the cane mutiny, was a speaker. And and he brought up the same point that you just made, that, that m most people who watched the movie or read the book uh, took the, long, the wrong lessons from that. They took the lesson that, uh, you know, sometimes you work for you know, bad guys, and the CEO in this case was a bad guy. But if you if you read that book or if you watch the movie closely when you get to the end, you realize that the thoughts going on in some of those lieutenants' heads were, yeah, I probably screwed that up. <laughs> I probably could have done a better job of helping my boss succeed and helping our command succeed, right? But it's a really good example. No, I, I love it, and I know that that's ultimately true. But, you know, if you're a first lieutenant um, and you're being treated poorly – or your CO appears to be a careerist or, you know, hypocrite and all the things that, not to get all social science on it, but that millennials and Gen Z abhor, 
I don't know. It just seems that that takes a level of professional maturity that's rare, you know, at, at the O two O three level, as right as that is. Um, so, Tom, the thing that before we go any further, what are the elements of a toxic leader? What what are some of the things that you've seen as the listeners? Like, I wonder if my boss is toxic. What what is a toxic leader? Well, uh, they come in different flavors uh, and styles, right? I, I think the the dark triad would be the you get the narcissist, you get the Machiavellian, and you get the sociopath all rolled up into one. <laughs> Probably the, the most common toxic leader that, that I've encountered in the Naval Service has been the narcissist, right? You know, that individual who just makes it all about them. Um, they're really happy to take credit for anything that your unit or you have done and make, make it their own, and they're very quick to pin the blame on anyone else but themselves. There are just those martinets, right, that we've that we've worked for. But then also micromanagers. I would consider micromanagers can be extremely toxic. Uh, and again, we could probably talk a little bit more now or later on what I define as micromanagement and what isn't. Um, but also, the, the feckless leader, right, is the two faces of the same coin, right? Sometimes that toxic leader is just the one that is just petrified to make a decision right we've all worked for that boss right you just won't make a decision because they don't want to screw up they don't want to make a mistake and the organization is just held in this limbo Uh, they're they're paralyzed and you know that's just equally as uh, demoralizing on the sailors equally as demoralizing on the marines is when you have a boss who won't do anything um so that's why i say sometimes you have to be the buffer you have to be the buffer from the narcissist and the martinet, um, but sometimes you need to be the magnifying glass, right? And that's, you know, stepping up and leading up uh, for those that, that are feckless. And then, you know, I would say the last category of toxic leaders that uh, we've seen recently after 20 years of uh, sustained combat operations is we have some damage leaders, right? We have we have some damage leaders, some individuals who have uh, suffered traumatic stress and uh, are and aren't coping with it well, and they'll be a, they'll self-medicate with alcohol or other things, and uh, those folks, you know, their their lack of emotional hygiene and their inability to control their emotions can uh, can cripple a unit, um, and, and we've seen that. But again, I think that these are the exceptions. Um, they're, they're not the rules, but we do need to make sure that we prepare our junior officers to know how to navigate that environment. And the big thing is, is that you know, they just need to do the right thing and fair no man. That's that's my command philosophy distilled down to a single sentence, right? Do right and fear no man. We should do what we ought to. Um, but the fear no man aspect of it, I had that back in the early 90s when I was commanding down in Paris Island. It wasn't intended to be bellicose. In fact, it was just my repudiation to what I saw back then was leadership by fear and intimidation. Um, you know, I, I just despise that, and uh, I just wanted to declare that in my leadership philosophy to the to the Marines. If they, anybody who's ever worked for me will, if you ask, you ever worked for uh, for Tom Gordon? I just probably, hopefully, the answer would be yes. Do right and fear no man. I like it. So, Tom, moving on towards the end of the book, there's a couple chapters there. Uh, with some of your maxims. So you, you talk about communication, you talk about leading through crisis and failure, and then you talk about character. And as I was scanning through those parts of the book and, and kind of reflecting on those maxims, one is, uh, uh, you know, you said it, but that doesn't mean they heard it. 
The report first report is always wrong. I've always loved that maxim. It's, I've had a number of bosses who've used that. And then uh, failure is the tuition we pay for success. I was thinking about uh, a, a number over the last few years of proceedings articles and just discussions I've had with people active duty and, and retired about zero defects and about the zero defects mentality. And I actually wrote an article when I was a lieutenant about zero defects uh, back in the 1990s. Um, so how do you how do you square that? You know, it, when you were a, a battalion commander or a brigade commander, um, how do you square the idea that okay, the first report's always wrong, but I don't want to shoot the messenger. That's another maxim. It's not on your list here, but it's another maxim that we've all heard a lot. Um, and then you talk about a little bit the disease to please. That's another one of your maxims. Uh, so how, how does the military get around, you know, hey, we have our careers, we're, we're, we're invested in our careers by the time we become majors or lieutenant commanders uh, in the service. Um, you know, we shouldn't be serving just because it forwards our career. But at the same time, you know, there's we were just talked about Scheller and how he just sort of blew himself up, you know, on the on the stage of Facebook, including, you know, did his family know that he was going to do that and what that would impact that would have on on their livelihoods. And, and um, you know, so how do you kind of square, you know, hey, I've got a bunch of lieutenants working for me. They're going to make mistakes. First reports are going to come to me. I know some of them are going to be wrong. I don't want to shoot the messenger, but at the same time, I owe my boss an explanation of what's happening down below him or me. Um, and how do you, how do you, what's, is there a recipe for, you know, rooting out the careerism and, and encouraging people to try things, to fail, to fail often, but not catastrophically in ways that, that they learn, that the organization learns and that the, you know, the Marine Corps or the battalion or the brigade becomes better. Hey, thanks, Bill. Um, you know, I'll talk about it from the Marine Corps lens, but uh, I read someday that uh, the Navy doesn't have any skippers who know how to pull their, their own ship off of a sandbar, right? No, there's no, <laughs> there's no Navy captains out there who know how to dislodge their own ship from a sandbar. Um, so, I love it. i got to make that into a... Uh, <laughs> a bumper sticker. That's great. So, uh, just my own. Ex we're all products of our experience, right? So, the only two things I have done pretty much in the Marine Corps is either I've been a three at, at every level from battalion all the way up to uh, the component. I was the Marcent uh, G3 um, back so you, a few years ago. So, you were an ops guy. Or I've been a commander. Yeah. Um, so, the first report's always wrong. Yes, that is a universal law. Um, I have a couple of anecdotes in there from uh, back in 2000. Uh, it was late 2003. I was a junior major on the CENTCOM staff. And I used to go to the, the CUB, uh, the commander's update brief, when General Abizade was the commander. And I, I can say with personal observation that uh, high-value target number one, the ace of spades, Saddam Hussein, was captured no less than four times while I was there. Wow. Uh, and that got reported all the way up to the COCOM commander. And I'll tell you, General Abizade, I went to school um, in, in his presence. He, I put several attributes in there in the front of my book because what the man would do is he would just breathe through his nose um, whenever he heard that. So things are never as good or as bad as first reported. And General Abizade was never the guy that picked up the phone and called uh, POTUS and let them know, hey, we finally got him. He just like, breathed through his nose and he goes, well, 
let's see how this let's see how the situation develops. Right. Uh, and sure as heck, when we come back, you know, within an hour or two, would be, you know, the chops, the chief of observations would come in with his shoulders rolled forward and his head hung low and say, uh, actually, sir, sorry, that report was incorrect. So we we rolled up Saddam Hussein's barber, but we're pretty sure we're going to get some good intelligence from this individual who's going to lead us to the principal. So um, <laughs> conversely, most of the reports that we receive, you know, are... Uh, the, are the bad ones, right? Um, those those phone calls in the middle of the night. Uh, we've all received those phone calls, and you bring up a really good point, and I put that into the book. So commanders need to be attuned to how they receive bad information, because when you get that first report, you know, how you receive it is going to decide when or even if you receive the follow-on report. So if you are the guy who shoots the, who shoots the messenger, Understand that's going to be career limiting right there because your people are going to be afraid to come and bring you that timely information that you're going to need. So you're you're cutting off your own nose uh, whenever you do that. So um, as I said, I was the the milsec kind of the chief of staff, if you will, for the commandant of the Marine Corps, and I would get those calls from the deck uh, every week. Uh, I'd get those calls, and I'd try to triage that as to what call I would actually call and wake up the commandant for, and which one would I take a knee and allow the situation to develop. I think 99 times out of 100, I took a knee and let the situation develop so that we were able to get that proper information to the boss um, without spinning them up with incorrect information. So uh, I, I guess that's something you pick up over a little bit of time, but uh, that first report coming in is, uh, it's, it's no fault to anybody. They just, people want to get that information up and the danger is, especially in a chaotic environment, is you don't know you get asked a question and people, junior leaders sometimes will try to, they don't want to say they don't know. Um, and, and that's a problem, right? So people will fill that with conjecture and, uh, and and that's how bad information passes. The other thing is we have the phenomenon as we're talking on this medium right now, I think we're on a Zoom call, but everyone else in the, oper in the operating forces right now are monitoring six or seven chat rooms at any one particular time. And they, they all want to be that junior officer. They want to be the one that's uh, that has their, their their finger on the pulse of what's going on, and they're reaching down. They're seeing what's happening in someone else's unit, right? Um, or they're seeing what's happening in a subordinate unit, and they see something in the chat room. They'll copy it and they'll pass that up before that information has had an opportunity to be verified, you know, by the commander. So sometimes it's not the commander's fault. Sometimes the, a well-intentioned staff can get out in front of the commander and start pushing information up. Um, of course, they'll caveat it, but the, those caveats are the first thing that drops when uh, in a crisis, when that information starts getting pushed up. Whenever that initial report comes up, it's a great opportunity to pause and go back and to, and to verify that report and allow that situation to develop. Um, it's, it's passing that incorrect information just because you don't know. Uh, that, that's where junior officers can get themselves in an awful lot of trouble. Let's just finish with one thing because it's uh, towards the end in, in under the title uh, taking command and the maxim is the two most screwed up people in the Marine Corps. So who are the two most screwed up people in the Marine <laughs> well, Corps? The two most screwed up people in the Marine Corps are the same two most screwed up people in the Navy. It's the guy you replace and the guy who replaces you, right? Um, General Neller would often say he's never met a man who took over a good unit or turned over a bad one. Um, you know, my, my lesson there is it's, you know, it, it's immature. Right. It's it's immature leadership, and you know you'll actually um, you'll get you'll get off on the wrong foot with your Marines or your sailors whenever you do that. Because you remember they were in that unit, right? 
you don't want to come. They're not looking for the conquering hero to come in, uh, unless your boss, the previous your predecessor, was relieved. You know, I always come in there assuming good intent and the fact that if I see something, it's just because I have a fresh set of eyeballs on the problem. So never fall into the trap of, of criticizing your predecessor. Um, in the book, I use the, the the Yeltsin parable. I don't know if you ever heard the Yeltsin Gorbachev parable. I, I I can't speak to its historic accuracy, but it's a it's a great leadership lesson nonetheless. It goes something like this: When Yeltsin was taken over for Gorbachev uh, back in what was that, 1992, uh, allegedly Gorbachev let, uh, left Yeltsin with two envelopes uh, and said, "Hey, you know, Boris, if things ever start going bad, you know, just open these envelopes in order." So uh, Yeltsin didn't have much uh, much for Gorbachev at that point, so he just took the envelopes, threw them in his desk drawer, and uh, poured himself a stiff drink of vodka, I guess. Well. After about six months of running the, the, the new Soviet empire, or Russian Russian empire, uh, you know, the, the brownouts were back and the food and the soup lines were long. So he figured, what the heck? He, uh, he reached into his desk drawer and he pulled out envelope number one. And inside, Gorbachev had left him a small note card and it just simply said, blame me. So at that point, Yeltsin thought that's a great idea. So he held a press conference, got out there and said, you have to understand, folks, that um, things are pretty bad in Russia right now because of 15, 20 years of mismanagement, you know, by Gorbachev and, uh, and, and the Communist Party. He goes, but I assure you, you know, we're on top of it and, and we're making lives better for everyday Russians. So it seemed to work, right? Uh, at least the, the lines were still there, but the, the press wasn't as bad, you know, for another few months. the. Brownouts came back, though, and uh, Yeltsin was under tremendous pressure, and he figured, well, you know, the, the first envelope worked out so well, so he reached in there, and he pulled out the second envelope, and he opened it up, and once again, there was a small card in there. You know what it said? Address two envelopes. <laughs> so, uh, that, that was always the lesson I would give to my junior officers whenever I would go down and I'd be inspecting their area, and they would tell me how screwed up things were because, you know, that's how the, the previous guy left it. I'd give him my little Yeltsin Gorbachev parable right there. And <laughs> told them that they, they just opened the first envelope. <laughs> I love it. That's a great story. So our guest this afternoon has been Colonel Tom Gordon, U.S. Marine Corps retire. He is the author of Marine Maxims, the newest book from the Naval Institute Press. It is subtitled Turning Leadership Principles into Practice. Tom, thanks for being on the show and uh, thanks for sharing the stories. Hey, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. That'll wrap up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. And this time I will finish with a slightly different maxim from us. Instead of victory begins, I'll say leadership begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>